This week, we are re-releasing Diners, Dueling Grounds, and Dives, an episode from our archive as PreserveCast takes a quick summer break. Sit back, listen up, and we'll be back soon. If you're listening to this podcast on the road, take a look out the window. You might be surprised at the history of some of the buildings out there. At least that's what happened to today's guest, Aaron Markovich. Aaron is the executive director of the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area, and he's here to share with us all about his work to help preserve everything from 1920s diners and often undervalued roadside architecture to the planned utopian community of Greenbelt, Maryland. Pull over if you have to, because this is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined in studio by Aaron Markovich, who is the executive director of the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. And as many of our listeners know, if you've listened all the way through to the end of the credits, Aaron is also the executive producer. I of hope you've listened all the way to the end. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, he is the executive producer of PreserveCast because Aaron was instrumental in helping us pull the funding together and uh, has been a partner through and through on this. So it's good to have you in the studio. Absolutely. Aaron. Thanks for having me. We always ask everyone just to kind of set the the tone for the interview to give us a little bit of background on you yourself and how you got into historic preservation. And then we'll get into the details of what it is you do now and what the heritage area is and, and all that good stuff. So how did you get here today? Historic preservation came to me by way of whenever where I, when I was growing up, the big word that I could say was architecture. So I wanted to be an architect. That sounded big and important. I went off, I did a summer program at Carnegie Mellon, and I found out I wasn't terribly good at it. So along the way, I said, well, I still like buildings. I like history. I like all these things. We had a uh, architectural history class in that summer program. And part of that conversation, it brought up historic preservation. I said, that sounds like an interesting thing. I think I want to get into that. Uh, I went and talked to the University of Vermont. They said, no, we only have a master's program, but we know of this one at Roger Williams University. So my undergraduate is a Roger Williams University from Bristol, Rhode Island. Go Hawks. And that was a really great program because it was very technical. It had planning background, small town, urban, uh, rural planning types of things. You could also do a specialization in conservation technologies. But I stayed on the planning side. I was more interested in how communities work and how they are interconnected and probably a little bit on the political side. Uh, did a semester in England. After that, went through and worked at what is uh, now Preservation Massachusetts. So the statewide in, in Massachusetts, and uh, then went and did a master's degree in history because I wanted a little bit more broad-based. I actually kind of flipped the typical schedule where you do this very broad-based history undergrad and then a preservation graduate. Instead, I went and did the history degree at Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Go Blue Raiders. And they had a center for historic preservation under a guy named Carol Van West, um, who is known around the preservation world as a guy that's very into his heritage areas. And so we did a lot of work there. After I left Tennessee, we, we said we had to get back to New England. My wife's from New England. We wanted to get back to New England. And we ended up spending seven years out on the uh, small island of Nantucket off the coast of Cape Cod two-hour boat ride. That's where both my kids were born and, and such. And I worked for the uh, 
at first the Historic District Commission there doing very technical kinds of work, and then actually became the director of the Affordable Housing Organization on the island. So I was bringing in architecture and details and what could we do with these houses, but we were also picking up houses and moving them around the island and restoring them. And we in particular had a, a house that was sort of a 1890s kind of Victorian that had been left over it was a very small house. And so I learned on the fly how to do lead abatement and asbestos deals and all these sorts of things. So I got a very technical thing. As I finished up there after seven years of that, I said, I need to get my hands really back into historic preservation. And that's when this opportunity down here in Maryland came open for Anacostia Trail. So that's when we moved down here and we uh, made our home in Greenbelt, which is another historic community. So I'm always about communities and preservation and how we mix those things together. So for people who are listening that maybe are outside of Maryland, or perhaps even people are in Maryland who don't know where Greenbelt is yeah. or where Anacostia is or where that name comes from, what is the Anacostia Trails heritage area? Where is it located? What's the kind of the makeup of that community? Sure. We're northern Prince George's County, right on the D.C. border. And uh, if folks take a look at the border of D.C. and that sort of imperfect square that is D.C., and follow uh, Route 1 and I-95 and the BW Parkway northward, you'll be passing through our heritage area. You'll be very much passing by the city of Greenbelt, which is at the center of it. But communities like Hyattsville, which has been on many of the Washington Post lists for hip communities, that's where we keep our office. The town of Bladensburg, which has a very long history going all the way from the War of 1812 and before to present to communities like Laurel. So that northern Prince George's area, we've just added Bowie, Chevrolet, and an area around Glendale, um, which is, I know, where the Glendale Hospital, which was one of your six to fixes, is located. Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with that, Glendale Hospital was a tuberculosis sanitarium from the early part of the 20th century. It's actually where D.C. sent its tuberculosis patients. They sent them out of the district into Maryland, into Prince George's County. Into the rural, you know, summery, enjoy Mm -hmm. the fresh air type of place. And it's been vacant for 30 years. And so we've been really kind of pushing pretty hard as an organization to try and get the government agencies that are responsible for it to actually kind of pick up the ball and start moving with it. And, And actually, we're pleased to report that that is actually actually happening. Yeah, it's fantastic to finally see. It's a monumental pile of bricks that's just wonderful to see. And and hopefully we will see it sometime in our lifetime as a functional building again. (laughs) Right. Hopefully it doesn't take 30 years to rehab now that the process has actually started. (laughs) Exactly. So it's a pretty urban area, what you're describing. That's right. And and Route 1, for people who aren't familiar with that, describe Route 1 because that, that (laughs) I mean, it conjures up, at least locally, a lot of different thoughts. Not all of them positive. Not all of them positive. Route one is interesting. I, you know, going back to where I, I grew up, I grew up in a very rural sort of environment. My my father's in in the mining industry, and we were surrounded by farms. And even on Nantucket, that was considered to be a rural community, and the you know all these different things. So coming to a very urbanized type of situation, these inner ring suburbs that were some of the early growth right out of Washington as it was developing at the turn of the century into the twenties and thirties. These were streetcar suburbs. These were communities that were linked by the trolley. They were linked by trains and they were gobbling up old plantation sites and becoming these large communities that were subdivisions and what have you. So Route 1 was the ribbon that ran through it. Now, Route 1, I've been doing research into this, Route 1 
in some ways was established in 1741. So it's been around for a very long time as a connector road. That was what the Rochambeau group, whenever they were marching towards Yorktown, used. This was a main route to get tobacco to ports, uh, such as Bladensburg or Elkridge Landing or what have you. And over the years, it's become urbanized. So the the route one that most people remember, especially within Maryland, is, is that they attended the University of Maryland. And they didn't want to venture out onto Route 1 because that was where couches got burnt or whatever it might be. So there was a lot of bad things about Route 1. But now today, a lot of that is becoming revitalized. And I think the pressure within historic preservation for these communities is you can go within a block off of Route 1 and find fantastic Victorian homes, 1920s homes, whatever they might be. There's beautiful, beautiful neighborhoods up and down the Route 1 corridor. But the Route 1 corridor being a block or two wide from the center point of Route 1 is a traditional uh, highway route that was the pre-Route 95 kind of thing, Interstate 95. This is what you traveled was Route 1. It, it goes all the way from Fort Kent, Maine down to Key West in, in Florida. This was America's Main Street and is still considered that in some ways. This is where all the development was happening. You could find a, a million different things. You could find tourist cabins. You could find gas stations and all kinds of, of crazy roadside stuff. And now it's facing... Development pressure, which is good because it's been so run down for the last 30, 40 years, but it it doesn't have it, the controls in terms of the architecture and the design and who is stepping up for the historic buildings along those routes is very much a big question that is constantly being uh, having a conversation about. And is that because people just locally sort of disregard it as being valuable? They think of it as, I mean, would you describe it as sort of sprawl-like? Yeah, I think I think there is an well I wouldn't say sprawl, I would say that it became very automobile centric. So Chester Liebs who who wrote this book Main Streets to Miracle Miles, he was a big roadside architecture kind of guy and um he talked about these miracle miles and the miracle mile was the automobile road leading into a city and it would tend to be clustered with a lot of gas stations, it would be clustered with car dealerships, it would be clustered with all automobile-related types of stuff. So that takes up big parking lots. If you take a place like Hyattsville that now has this big buzz about it, it's because of the condo buildings that have been built right on Route 1 and these restaurants and everything. Well, those were all built in the parking lots of the old Lustine Auto Place. So they were all just giant, empty parking lots. And that's what people remember is this empty parking lot aspect of it. So it, it, sprawl to me is a little bit different, but it was a very unique type of sprawl that comes from that route one we're just passing through. And I think that was the key. The road became a, we're passing through, not a, we're going to stop and experience these historic communities that have been here since 1880. And now your heritage area, I mean, I, I'm guessing you're not promoting or suggesting that we should preserve empty parking lots, but the buildings associated with them we well, would like to see preserved? Yeah, I think it's actually even the, the era before that. It's not necessarily the stuff from the 60s and 70s, but it's the stuff before that. Again, to go back to Hyattsville, I, I, I'm going to pick on them a little bit, but they have a building that was a Woolworth, a 1920s Woolworth. In, in College Park, they've got another early commercial strip that is now the home of the, was it a bagel shop or something like that. And those are 1920s, 1930s era buildings that got left behind. And now as the pressure for development has chewed up most of those empty parking lots, they're now starting to turn their attention towards these other places. 
And now, do any of these places have the kind of traditional preservation controls that we would you not, know, not be really. familiar with? Not really. I would have to go back and double check, but you know, they're not necessarily on a national register. The one that really got me sad was we lost a, a little tavern. Uh, little taverns were these small porcelain enamel buildings that were uh, had a green roof, and they were a, they were a hamburger stand. Think of a White Castle or something to that effect. This is the one in College Park. This is the one in College Park, and you know the university was trying to clean up College Park, and is doing a very good job. Has changed the face of it. But that building was run down to them and was useless. Let's just get rid of it. And I tried to see if we could fight to save it and make it into a, another little food stand or something. But they had their vision in mind for what was going to go there, and that was gone. Now, that's a building that could have been disassembled and moved and reused. But finding a way to reuse them is difficult. Roadside architecture stuff like this is very difficult to deal with. I think it's interesting to have a heritage area that's based around Route 1 like this because it's a different type of experience than you might experience it let's say with the heritage areas in the heart of the civil war you're experiencing these large open uh, rural areas rolling lands and whatever and right. then small communities almost what people think of when you think of a heritage area that's right that's and right I, I think that to some extent it's great in a, in a state that has really urban areas that we would embrace that and suggest that there's a heritage worth preserving there that's it and that's good to say that but then how do you do it? How do you do it? Can't let UMD come in and, and take out these really charming historic structures. And, and on top of that, then you also are dealing with the situation where the main highway, this Route One corridor, is a state highway. It's a federal highway. Who's in charge of it? How are they dealing with telephone poles and cleanups and all these? So there's very thick and sticky issues that we have to kind of crash through makes it difficult, which is part of the reason why we've taken a lot of time and focused on bicycle tourism and getting people to experience our historic sites, because that was an easier lift to get them there. Now we are pushing very hard into this, how do we deal with the much thicker issues? And it, it's not easy. It takes a, a incremental approach and you got to have a long vision on it. You can't just say, we're going to snap our fingers and zoom, you've, you've gotten the issues fixed. This is going to take 30, 40 years to repair the problems that were caused over the course of 30 or 40 years. Right. Well, those thick and sticky issues, I think, would be something that we can take up after we take a quick break here and maybe talk a little bit more, you, you you mentioned that it's difficult to move or to save roadside architecture sometimes. And maybe we can talk a little bit about why that is the case. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. So I'm sitting here with Beatrice Markovich. And Beatrice, I have a couple questions. My first question is, have you been to many museums? Yes, I have to. I, I have been to a lot of museums, especially with my dad. Do you have a favorite? Um, my favorite is probably in Washington, D.C. with um, the National, National um, History Museum. Okay, like the, the Smithsonian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was your favorite part about it? Um, I just like seeing all, all the different kinds of animals there. I just thought um, that those um, animals there are pretty cool. Very cool. So, Beatrice, who is your dad, and what does he do? Um, he's a historic preservationist, and he 
he like preserves um old like old houses and teaches different people like me about what about like what the place was or is all right i was i was also asking what's his name so that people know <laughs> um my dad's name is aaron markovich so i had a question that was what is the oldest building you've ever been in i don't know if you know that off the top of your head so i have been to a lot of old um buildings but probably like one of the oldest ones i've been to is the Mon- monticello house um in virginia very cool thomas jefferson's house right mm-hmm. thank you for coming on beatrice and uh sharing with us your perspective on historic preservation thank you you're listening to preserve cast This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Aaron Markovich, who is the executive director of the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area and is also the executive producer of PreserveCast. So yes. we are in the presence of our boss. Which is <laughs> something good, like that. Something like that. Um, I need a and, fancier chair. Yes, he's sitting. He's you, know, you can't see it right now, but he's sitting in a large producer's chair. And he always does. He presides over every podcast. Um, so what, before we took the break, you were talking about how it's difficult sometimes to repurpose or to move or disassemble roadside architecture. We saw that recently here at Preservation Maryland. We got involved in an issue at the Bellock Diner, which yeah. is one of these mm-hmm. just great roadside diners from the 1960s in Baltimore County, north of the city of Baltimore. And there in that situation, you know, they basically Starbucks came in and said that they wanted to put in a Starbucks, which we thought perfect. You can repurpose a diner, I think, yeah, into a Starbucks. And they had no interest in doing that. And it became a very difficult situation. Why is that? What what's going on with roadside architecture where you don't have the same level of interest of repurposing or reusing? Is it too too hard? Was it cheaply built? What's I, going I, on? Yeah, I think there's a mixture of things. So in my background, my thesis and my master's degree was on how you deal with not only just uh, roadside architecture, but specifically roadside architecture that is standardized. How do you deal with buildings that are constantly the same sort of design? How do you preserve that? What are those issues? So I've been dealing with roadside architecture and how it works uh, for quite a long time. And the thing that really occurred to me along the way is both my father and my brother have uh, business degrees and it was never really my thing. I was the historian. I was a little bit more squishy, I guess. But I realized that this all had to do with economics. And I had to take a deep dive into the economics of it. The buildings that were designed for the side of the road were designed to be a 30-year lifespan. They were intended to have a quick depreciation. They were intended to get out of there fast. They were not intended to be a long life. If you look for a building from an apartment building from the 1890s, it's built out of stone and has a Richardson Romanesque arch to it and whatnot. Those are amazing things. Roadside architecture, they were intended to be quick up, quick down, cheap material, let's get producing. And that also has to do with the, and they talk about getting wonky and getting into the details, yeah. but that has a lot to do with the change in the tax code as well, right? That's right. Because we changed our tax code and how long you could take to depreciate That's something. That's it. You and got I think it. a lot of preservationists overlook the impact of that. Uh, absolutely. Because if we had a tax code that required businesses to depreciate over a longer period, we would be saving a lot more buildings because there'd be a lot less interest in building new 
and just holding on to something old. And that changed when? Is that like under Truman, that period? Uh, yeah, some, sort of in that period. That's the 1950s period. You get that real change in materials. You get a change in styles and all that. So, you know, the diners from the 1920s, they are still around. They're still fantastic. There's a great one in Providence that is just unbelievable. It's streamlined, modern. It's, it's amazing to see. And then you have these buildings that are from the 40s and the 50s, and they're still kind of okay, and they can survive. But by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, where you're getting tilt-up construction in diners, <laughs> I had a short stint as the, uh, the interim executive director of the American Diner Museum, so I really dived into the, the diner thing. But you, then you went to this tilt-up style. They would put in place pieces of concrete. And the construction material, the cost of refitting them is just not there for a place like a Starbucks the process that they would have to go to to do it. So then you have to impress upon people the need to preserve them because of a community aspect. And it comes back to community and it's not about the dollars and cents. And for most of these companies, it's about the dollars and cents. So how you make that transition, you you have to have that push. I mean, that's why something like Preservation Maryland is a, a really valid kind of organization to have is to put that advocacy behind it and put the pressure on those places. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, as we know all too well. That's right. I mean, you know, you look at the thing like the little tavern that I was dealing with in College Park. I didn't have the, the power to go up against the University of Maryland. The decisions had been made years before, and it was just the way it was going to go. Now, that structure was from the 1920s? Like um, a little burger stand kind it, of deal? Yeah, sort of. It was actually a little bit later, um, 30s, 40s, because by that point, they were using a porcelain enamel product. And the porcelain enamel is actually great to just take pieces of it and reuse. But I didn't have a plan to where that would go. And so that ended up in a landfill. It ended up in a landfill. So it wasn't even deconstructed. No. Which is what we oftentimes, kind of our fallback position, it's not where we want to be always, but is at the very least, deconstruct these buildings. And, and that can still be accomplished with these structures that you're talking about, tilt-ups and things like that, which is what Bell Lock was like. We know sort of the background of the history of it. That diner came on the back of a truck. Yeah. And then they pulled it, it off and bolted it together. Bolted and, it together. That's a very 1960s kind of tilt-up style. So uh, pretty common versus the ones that would come in the 1920s or, or so. But they would, again, arrive by truck or by trailer, but they were a one-piece unit. It was more right. like a trailer type of And those situation. are a lot easier to save and they move are. around. They are. Things like that. You sort of dropped a little little gem in there before. <laughs> you said you were the interim executive director of the Diner Museum, which sounds awesome. Does that also include <laughs> like, a, awesome. like a per diem to go around and eat at diners? Yeah, I, that, that's, well, that was the intention in writing my thesis about all this stuff, <laughs> okay. was is that I could go and eat at those places or go to funky gas stations right. or go to motels and do all that sort of uh -huh. thing. No, the Diner Museum was a short-lived project in Providence. It had a lot of other things that it was related to, but never quite made it up off the floor. There's actually... Um, a school there, Johnson and Wales, that has a culinary museum that absorbed some of the collection. But it's neat stuff, and there's some really interesting people out there in the diner world. So in addition to the roadside architecture that you're dealing with in the Anacostia Trails heritage area, you also have these communities that you were talking about. Yes. Greenbelt sort of stands out as one that I think gets a lot of interesting attention. And for people who aren't from Maryland and aren't familiar with it, it, it might be an interesting just sort of little story to tell about what exactly is Greenbelt and then what does your heritage area do in Greenbelt? Yeah, Greenbelt is fantastic. It's a planned, a utopian community. So I live in a utopia, not really, but it basically was established by the federal government in the 1930s, uh, 1937, under Roosevelt as part of the whole New Deal situation. And he came in and they created a plan and they were going to have a series of these Greenbelt communities. And the idea was, is that this was going to take people out of the slums of the, of the cities and move them out to low income rental housing 
on the outskirts of major cities. So Greenbelt was intended to be on the outskirts of DC, which is what it is, close by so that somebody could drive in, but not so close that it was picking up all the slum aspects. And then having a green belt around it? A green belt around it, exactly. Um, That green belt still exists today, although not in the way that they had intended it. That's actually been chewed up by other communities, but there had been that intention. There was an intention that there was going to be farming available to it, and there was going to be all sorts of different aspects. And then all the architecture within the community was either an international flat roof type of style or a cottage style. They based it off of a community in New Jersey, Radburn, that they were going to make as a cottage style or an English cottage style, which is a brick with a, a slate roof to it. And do you live in one of these little... I do. I do. I, live in, one of the, I do live in one of the brick houses, um, 1937. And you know, and then what happened in the 1950s is, is that the government disinvested himself after, the, after World War II. We had a whole series of frame houses, wooden houses that were built for the World War II time. And the government disinvested and they said, we're going to sell it. And they sold it to an organization called Greenbelt Homes Incorporated, which still runs it as a cooperative. So we don't actually own the houses like a condo. We own them as a we own a share, one sixteen hundredth of a share of the entire community that gives us the right to live in those homes. So when you go to sell, does it keep it more affordable? It does keep it more affordable. But it also means that you have different limitations on the types of mortgages and things that you can get. So it's a little bit more difficult, but it's a fantastic community to live in. Everything's walkable. We have a theater there. We have a library there. We have a grocery store. Do you have a diner? Uh, we, we have a small uh, place that's called the New Deal Cafe that's uh, fantastic. <laughs> And it's got a very cool 1930s, 1940s vibe and the art deco kinds of things. And it's walkable. It's perfect for kids. I I know I'm going to sound like a realtor here just trying to sell this thing. But it's a fantastic community. And from the heritage tourism perspective, it's um, almost like a Williamsburg kind of experience. You can drive in, you park, and suddenly you're in the 1930s in a lot of ways. So the, the Greenbelt Museum does fantastic work as an opportunity to see a house in its original condition. They've just now bought through the Heritage Areas program a second piece of a building that they're going to turn into a visitor center slash education center. It's a jewel in the heritage area. We've got a lot of different things. Like I say, we go everything from the early Anacostia Native American communities to the oldest black uh, um, municipality in the state in North Brentwood to places like Hyattsville and College Park and Laurel. But Greenbelt sits sort of right in the center, right off of the Beltway, and is a really unique kind of experience. Yeah. And then from Greenbelt, you know, you're talking about all these different places. And the one in that last little lineage you didn't mention is Bladensburg, which yeah. is, you know, over the past couple of years, I guess a few years back now, that was a major focus of yours, major which focus. is the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812. Uh, yeah. Bladensburg is uh, a really amazing community. It's not really well known. People might know it from the Peace Cross that's located there. I and mean, there was a big kerfuffle going on about whether or not the Peace Cross should be removed which is a World War II, a World War I monument. But we were involved with the uh, creation of a monument there, and we had a big event. We tried to fight the Battle of Bladensburg again. We lost, uh, seemed to keep on losing this battle <laughs> over and over again. If folks are interested, there is a reenactment at Riversdale Mansion usually every year, and that's, that's a great time to do it. But Bladensburg was a unique experience. It was called the darkest day in American history because of the American loss. But I'm sorry, if you go up against the strongest military in the world, the British, and you are untrained and untested, you're probably going to run. The The problem there with Bladensburg is, is that that battlefield has been basically developed over. So the battlefield doesn't really exist anymore. 
But you do have a dueling ground. We do left, have a right? dueling ground, yes. Uh, so the dueling ground, which is located kind of where uh, we had a guy, Joshua Barney, in the Battle of Bladensburg, who managed to keep the British back for a little bit and was our big hero. He stood basically right over top of the dueling ground. The dueling ground, if folks are used to the big musical Hamilton, if you've heard that, they have the 10 dual commandments. Well, there was, dueling was very common. This was how you solved problems in the early 1800s if you were dishonored. And we had something in the neighborhood. Of, well, there's 25 documented duels. There's probably closer to 50 that were actually fought there. The b big one, the most famous one was Decatur Baron. And they fought over, I believe it was the speed of a steamship. And they killed, uh, one of them killed the other. I can't remember right now. But there's a little piece of land that's there. And we're looking at seeing if we can get an art installation or something. There is some interpretive signage. But it's just a quiet little corner kind of hidden off the side of uh, alternate US-1. It's a, it's a neat little place to well, visit. Maybe you and I could duel in a future podcast. Absolutely. I'd love to go down to there and like, duel. Like maybe it could be like uh, whoever wins becomes the executive producer. <laughs> So, that's it. That, that's, mean, the, that's the that's uh, the rule. Yes, I, fight it, to the death. You can't on it. see it right now if you're listening, but I just dropped a glove. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> and my honor will be yes. uh, avenged here. Yes. Um, well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I it's mean, a fantastic place, and it sounds like it's. I mean, you know, working in preservation is a lot of fun, but it, it sounds like you have a great job in the sense that there's always something different that you can focus on. If you want to focus on 1812, you want to focus on utopian communities, or you want to try and fix roadside architecture. You got there's it. And, no and lack of different projects. It, it's a fantastic place because of tourism. Um, heritage areas are a unique opportunity. I, I love the system and how it works. It's been a real pleasure to do it. Cool. Well, um, we don't let anyone out of the studio without telling us about their favorite piece of architecture. And if they're from Maryland, we make them restrict it to Maryland. Yeah. So we're going to make you oh, choose man. among children. <laughs> well, can I have my children answer for me? Yeah. <laughs> my favorite Maryland building. Gosh, I, I, you know, I could come up with some things that are in a lot of different places. I'm going to stay within the heritage area and, safe. and, and keep good. safe, keep safe, uh, make sure I don't offend too many people. I'm really, I really love the Laurel Railroad Station. It is one of the, the few examples of the B&O Railroad Station. It's a mainline station. It's a 1880s, so it's a, a little bit of a stick style, shingle style type of thing, but in brick. And it's a really cool building just to be able to stand there at the railroad and, and see this building. I, I'm sure I could have picked Glendale or Riversdale or a, a dozen other buildings, but that one stands out to me because it's got a neat railroad connection and it's 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 sort of unique. There's something about railroads. I'm looking over at, at our uh, producer here, Stephen, who sits in on all of these. And there's something about railroad stations yeah. because I think this is the third or fourth one really? that we've... That <laughs> People, I mean, they just, I guess, transportation, the idea that you could take a train. Isn't that novel? I wish I could say it was the little tavern if it existed anymore, yeah. but I, I can't say that. So I'll no. default to the railroad station. Now, is the railroad station, is it active? Can it you, is active. So you yep. can go and catch a train there. You too. can pick up the Mark station. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you Absolutely. in here. We appreciate your partnership in this and your leadership as the executive producer of PreserveCast yeah. <laughs> and your leadership, of course, truly on the ground, making the Anacostria heritage area a, a better place to live and to visit. Yeah. So thanks Thank for you being for with me. us today. All righty. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. 
Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.